across the city of Derby and beyond. This is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations, and you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. So it says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because, the glory of that, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that was, sorry, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all with our unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, there's a lot in this passage, um, and I can't do all of it justice this morning, which is probably why I was given such a specific title. <laughs> However... Um, let's have a quick look at the, f the first section, which ends in verses 5 and 6. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul is basically, in this part of this passage, attempting to justify his mission and his apostleship again to the Corinthians. He's kind of re-explaining who he is and what, what, what his background is. Basically, the church was struggling to accept him as an apostle, and he was reminding them of what the science of an apostleship was. It's not that he works on his own merit or own strength, but he works with God's strength. The, the Corinthians had many people coming to speak to them. Some of them were good teachers. Some of them were false teachers. Some of them brought things against Paul. And also their cultural background meant that they'd made many presumptions about the gospel. So the Corinthians were making presumptions about the gospel because of their cultural background, and it meant that they were struggling to accept who Paul was and his teaching. Part of that reason was because they, they kind of felt like salvation was something that made them like, to be like God. And in reality, what God has done through Christ is that he became like us. He became incarnate. He became 
made in flesh. The person of Jesus came in the style of foolishness and weakness, and that wasn't the kind of gospel that the Corinthians thought that they were looking for. So when Paul showed weakness in his body, when he showed lack, when his doctrine might not have been what they were looking for, they were finding that hard. They wanted to be free from weakness, and Paul was the opposite of what they thought that an apostle should look like. He kept being shipwrecked and all sorts of things. And they're like, is that really an apostle? So the first lesson right from the start is that the gospel cannot just, you know, we can't just lose what God's wanting to teach us by somebody teaching it badly or uh, by living in sin or living uh, through bad living. Uh, We can also lose it if we attempt to measure what the gospel is saying against worldly standards. When we think power, success and popularity are the most important things, if we're judging something by its charisma or wealth or the amount of people that attend, these things Paul was trying to teach them aren't always the marks of what the gospel is. And we need to be really careful that we don't use the world's measures to measure what God wants to do. We have to remember that the, the gospel is often the upside-down kingdom. Things that seem the last and the least are often the things that God wants to do and bless, and he calls the greatest. And I was reminded as I was preparing this section about a time when I went forward to pray, be prayed for at my mum's church. Um, and as you do, you go up and you look at the people that are going to pray and you think, I want that person to pray for me. And then I saw them point at somebody who had just become a Christian, uh, didn't know at all, and said, go and pray for him. And I'm like, oh, okay. I wanted that person because I know that they've got this gift and I'd like to receive from that. Anyway, he comes up, prays. The, the stuff that he prays is spot on. The word he has for me is spot on and really, really encouraging. And I'm standing there going, oh, okay, whoops. And so don't judge a book by its cover. It's an old saying, but actually the cover might look amazing, but what's inside isn't always. And actually, if you look at something, you might not receive it because you're expecting that it has to look impressive. And actually, God doesn't always work through those things. Paul is trying to reaffirm in them what biblical standards and expectations are. The second bit we can learn from this passage is that Paul is teaching us that it's not out of our own merit, our own sufficiency. We're not adequate in our own strength, but we need to be those that live in God's strength. And actually, you know, we can look at Paul and his teaching and think, wow, he's an impressive, amazing person, and he went through all these things, and actually we see him as really impressive. But what he's saying is actually, if I'm not following what God wants, if I haven't got the Spirit in me, then that doesn't mean anything anyway. He's encouraging us to be ministers of the new covenant and to see that God is our sufficiency, that we're sufficient in him, that we all can be ministers of God because he's with us and we can bring his promises to a broken world. It's through his spirit, through God himself, that we're sufficient and that we can share his good news. If the new covenant was like the old covenant, then we would need to be passionate about the law and understand it and be able to attain it and and actually... We don't have to live in that way because what Paul reminds us is that the new covenant is all about the Holy Spirit. It's through the Spirit. It gives us life. It enables us to be ministers, not in our own strength, our own merit, but in God's sufficiency. And this is really good news. It brings life. The law only managed to bring condemnation, but the Spirit brings abundance and fullness. Paul is encouraging us to step out into the ministry uh, that brings life, that brings the Spirit. And we might not feel sufficient, we might actually feel the opposite of that, but actually it's God who makes us sufficient, it's God that makes us able to do that. And Paul wanted to make this distinction, he thought it was important that we understood this, that 
that even though he might appear to be at work, it's actually God through him that, that does those things. And so we may not always be impressive to look at, but it's God who appoints, and it's God who gives what we need to be a witness. So, first two things here. So we need to be careful of our expectations of Christian life, life match uh, what the Bible says. And Paul thought that judging something merely by, by values of charisma and wealth and numbers was heresy. So, the, the next bit I wanted to look at was 7 and 8. The ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. How much more will the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Moses is a familiar character to us. We, uh, uh, Naomi shared a, a section of Moses' uh, life earlier in the worship time. Um, he's a father of our faith, and it's a good thing that he's mentioned um, and Paul um, is saying that our encounters with God should be even more awesome, should reflect the Lord's glory even more, even more than what Moses saw. Because the revelation that Moses had was passing away. It was written on stone, and it only could bring condemnation. But the new covenant, the ministry that we are part of, the ministry of righteousness, is, even far, is far more glorious and never passes away. So the, the passage he's looking at is Exodus 34, 29 to 35. Um, and the really, I suppose the important part of that was where, when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. Um, and th- there's, a, there's a whole section there that talks about what happened. He basically put a veil on his face. And Paul calls the Old Covenant a ministry of death that required sacrifices for reconciliation, for forgiveness, the spilling of blood for the redemption of sin. And the final outworking of that covenant was uh, the plan for Jesus to die. Despite that, Paul is making clear that there was still glory in these letters and in this law, despite the fact that it was a ministry of death, because of the presence of God, because God's glory was with them, even, even so, the Israelites couldn't look at Moses' face. And Paul is teaching us that if there was enough glory to create fear in the Israelites, so much so that, that Moses wanted to veil his face so that they didn't freak out, then um, how much more glorious is um, what the ministry of Jesus? Um, the glory of God was very real and evident in Moses' ministry. The Old Covenant didn't lack glory. If you think about it, there are multiple miracles, signs and wonders. I mean, Daniel in the lion's den... The fiery furnace, some of you will be familiar with these. Uh, writing on the wall, I think that's Darius. The parting of the Red Sea, the, uh, you know, the people of Israel escaping from Egypt. It's not like there was a lack of God's glory and amazing things going on in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. Um, and Paul's readers and listeners would have been thinking about those things as well. Despite these things, despite these things going on in the Old Covenant, we should expect that the ministry of the New Covenant should be even more glorious. If you thought that the Old Covenant was impressive and full of God's glory, we should be bowled over by what God wants to do amongst us. Um, Paul continues this theme for a number of verses, so it goes from verses 7 up to 11. Um, and he's basically... Um, repeating and reinforcing his point when the Bible does that, when the writers in the Bible do that, they're, they're, they're wanting us to really listen to what they're trying to say um, it's not that they're repeating it for repeating's sake um, it's driving the point home 
And so the expectation is that, that uh, in the new covenant, we are so privileged that we should expect it to be even more glorious that our, and that we should expect to experience and be aware of God's glory even more. Um, the ministry of the Spirit is meant to bring life. It's meant to bring righteousness to us. So we need to be careful that our expectations of the Christian life match what the Bible say, that we shouldn't always judge things by the values of this world. And Paul's expectation was that we should be expectant and be aware of God's Spirit, uh, spirit and the experience his glory all the more because of the Holy Spirit working in us. Verse 14 says, Only through Christ is the veil taken away. So we've said that the presence of God came in such glory that uh, the Israelites didn't want to look at Moses' face. And even more than that, Moses prevented them by covering his face. The veil hid the glory of God. The ultimate goal of the law was for people to see God's glory, to know who God was. Um, and actually, Moses not only delivered the law, but he actually brought about the judgment of the law because he hid God's glory from the people. Um, and Paul is suggesting that the veil stayed in place until Christ's work removed it. Uh, Christ and Christ alone removes that veil. The veil that covered our faces as well, which lessens the brightness and um, awesomeness of God's glory. Moses was changed when he returned from being encountering the presence of God and used the veil because they were afraid. And Jesus removes the need for that veil. It's, it's similar to the curtain being torn in two as we read in the New Testament as Jesus died. The curtain was the thing that, that kept us uh, separate from God's presence. We no longer need to hide our faces from others as well. God's glory, or God wants his glory to be revealed to all. So the other thing is that if we keep a veil on our faces, then God's glory doesn't get shown no longer for one person at one time. We can all behold God's glory. We can all reflect his glory. We believe that the presence of God is equally accessible to all of us that trust in Jesus, that we all have a responsibility to be ministers of the gospel, that we all have a responsibility to communicate things clearly. How many times do we hide what God has done in our lives? How many times do we forget or don't treasure the things that he's done, that he said? How often do we go about our lives without reflecting or letting others know about what God has been doing in us? Do we veil God because we don't communicate him clearly enough to those around us? Jesus came to remove those obstacles, the obstacles to relationship with him and his Father. He came to remove that veil. Do we reapply it uh, when we leave uh, on Sundays or when we've, after we've spent time with God? We need to do all we can to clearly communicate what it is that we believe not just preachers and teachers, but each one of us. Uh, I'm stealing somebody else's story, so I hope John uh, won't mind when he listens back. Uh, but a couple of weeks ago, we had our normal prayer meeting, and uh, John and Matt were sitting out waiting for me to turn up with the keys, and a lady walks down with her dog and says, oh, what are you guys up to? And he says, oh, we're, going to pre we're having a prayer meeting. Would you like to join us? Like John would. Um, and um, the lady's like, oh, I used to be part of a church. Oh, that'd be really cool. Oh, how often do you meet? Um, and anyway, she carries on and, walk, and goes to walk her dog. And then a few minutes later, I'm about to uh, close the door again because um, of the security around there. And she sort of waves at us and says, I'm coming back. I'm just going to drop my dog off. And anyway, um, 
so she came and joined us and was the, probably the most passionate prayer that was there. She looked amazed at all the songs we were singing. And it was just one of those moments where John just says what he normally does, which is, you know, would you like to join us? Uh, and, and actually that was the invite that she needed to spend time with God. And in a sense, he removed that veil. He said, you know, come and join us. We're going to meet with God. We're going to pray for situations around us. And it's easy to do that, and it's difficult to do that at the same time. And actually, we need to be um, more aware of those things and more aware of stepping out in those areas as well. Um, So, Christ removes the veil for us. We're getting there. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Paul moves on, and he's hinted about it before, but Jesus came to bring us freedom. It's a freedom from the law of sin and death. It's a freedom to know God and to see him face to face. It's a freedom from the veil that's now no longer there. We are able to be in God's presence. We don't need to hide our faces from his presence. We don't need to hide our faces in his presence. And we don't need to hide his presence uh, when we go out into the world we are truly free and that should produce in us thankfulness and rejoicing where the holy spirit is and where he is at work there should be liberty the old law is finished the chains of sin that have so easily entangled us are broken we have liberty and freedom to access the presence of god to be in the presence of almighty god It's not by our own merit or our sufficiency, as Paul was saying earlier. It's a work that Jesus has done for us on the cross. This freedom removes the barriers that have been impeding our spiritual understanding. It it takes away the things that, the veil, that has stopped us understanding what it is that God has done for us. And that doesn't happen by our own strength. It's a work of the Spirit. Now Paul here intentionally uses the word freedom for salvation It's the opposite of slavery. It's the opposite of condemnation. It's the opposite of death. He's suggesting that in the natural, as descendants of Adam, we're essentially bound, that we can't freely communicate with God, that we're in rebellion, and that we're slaves to sin. And the result of that is a condemnation to death, and there's nothing we can do about it. And we're also blinded to what God has done through Jesus. And Paul is saying, without the Holy Spirit in us, without his presence, we're not free. That without, those, without the Holy Spirit, we don't see ourselves correctly and we don't see God correctly. There's a fundamental misunderstanding of who we are and who he is. We don't see ourselves as fallen and needing salvation. And we don't see God as our saviour, our redeemer, our justifier. It's a freedom that comes without condition. It's not something we can naturally possess or achieve or gain because we can't see that that's what God has done for us. It's, it's also a liberation from a focus on ourselves, on our own religiosity, on what we can do, what we can achieve. It's a freedom because it's a gift. It's a gift in response to accepting what God has done, his goodness. We don't have to qualify. We only need to trust in Jesus. The only condition is trusting him. And this message would have been just as scandalous as it sounds today. It's a complete mind shift. It's the opposite of what our world is saying. In our culture, freedom is autonomy. It's reliance on self. It's free from the need to rely on others. 
but this isn't the sort of freedom that we're talking about. It's not isolationist teaching. It's not cutting ourselves off from the world. It's a freedom to be in relationship with God, and that includes communication and exchange, and it encompasses the whole of our lives. It's not just in the good. It's also in the midst of suffering and in need, and that's what Paul experienced. It's communication with our Heavenly Father, which leads to greater communication with our neighbour, with the world around us. It's not just word, but action. It's not just preaching, it's doing things. The freedom becomes a freedom to serve wholeheartedly and sacrificially. Paul's expectation is that when we receive the presence of God, it's not just a nice feeling or a rewarding experience. It's a fundamental change on our outlook of the world around us. It's receiving the presence of God that brings the kind of freedom we've only dreamed about. And as Jesus promised, he promised life in all its fullness, in abundance, John 10, 10. So where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and it's a freedom to communicate and exchange with God, and then in response to the world around us. So as you said, verse 18 is thought of as the capstone in this section. We all with our unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul has been leading up to this final verse. And actually the meaning of this verse depends on how you translate the word that the ESV uses as beholding. And actually there's a number of different ways of looking at what that phrase in the original text meant. It appears that what you think Paul is referring to in this passage reflects what what you're going to use as that word. Um, and it's likely that beholding doesn't really cover its meaning at all, actually. It might be clearer to say beholding as in a mirror, reflecting, contemplating, seeing the glory of the Lord. This is actually probably a truer representation of what Paul's been saying. He's encouraging us that as part of the new covenant, we are called to reflect the Lord's glory. This is for all of us. Um, unlike the glory of the old covenant which was given to specific people at specific times and in this case as we've been looking at Moses now we're all counted in Christ have the privilege to encounter God and communicate with him in a sense we have that same freedom that Moses had to enter into the very presence of God and speak to him face to face and this is an immense privilege we I don't think take this seriously enough it should, in reality, change our whole outlook on what Christian life is and what our faith means. Moses had a unique privilege in the Old Testament to converse with God as a friend, face to face. Um, but as Christians, each one of us have been given that privilege of seeing God more clearly and more comfortably. The Israelites only saw God's glory from afar. They saw a cloud and a pillar of fire, and they would have been awe-inspiring, but they'd been formidable, they'd have been frightening as well. It's the presence of God. But we are able to see God without a veil, to see the light rather than simply being it as, seeing it as a formidable thing, as an awe-inspiring thing. It's now something that in its very nature brings us life and brings us liberty. We're transformed into God's image. We're made into his likeness. And this is what Paul is saying. And it's a little by little. Paul's suggestion is it's a gradual process until we're united with Christ. This unveiling of faces and also this being freed from a hardening of heart, which is also the, the judgment for our rebellion against God. This blindness is overcome in Jesus. The ability to see God as he is, is overcome in what Jesus did for us. 
Paul uses the present tense in being transformed. He's showing that it's not just a one-time thing, a one-off thing. It's an ongoing process. We're constantly being transformed. And it's important to understand that just as the Israelites experienced an observable encounter with God, so just as they saw the, the pillar and saw the fire, we should expect that our encounters with God should be, in, should be some sort of experience as well. They should be just as physical. They should be seen and perceived. It should be experiential and transforming. We shouldn't be content with any less than that. If our experience of the gospel doesn't transform us, we haven't really understood it. We can often be a bit negative to those that we see as just coming along to meetings or event surfing or conference hopping, going from one experience to another to another, looking for an encounter. But actually Paul's expectation was that our faith shouldn't simply be about head knowledge. It shouldn't simply be about gaining more and more information about God. That it should be something that we experience. We're a privileged people. We no longer live under the old covenant that revolved around law and sacrifice. This transformation is not a one-off affair, it steadily grows. Now, one of the ways you translate it, it talks about mirrors. And ancient mirrors were generally made of using a flat piece of circular metal. Earlier mirrors were made using stone. This metal would then be polished to produce a surface that would create a reflection. The more polished the surface, the clearer the image that would be reproduced. What Paul is trying to teach us here is that the life of the believer is one of continual polishing, not by us, but by the Spirit, so that we produce to a greater and greater extent a glorious image, a, a glorious reflection of the one who we love, a reflection of the gospel of Christ to those around us. And we're called to be a true reflection of God, not like a fairground mirror that can stretch or distort your image in strange ways that often makes you laugh, hopefully. Or even like a shop mirror, which might make you look thinner than you really are to make that, that dress or that suit look good on you. Instead, we are called to be those that are highly shiny mirrors without blemish on the surface, which would change the way God's image is reflected. And there are all sorts of things that can impact how we reflect who God is. Let's be clear, this isn't in our own strength. We're not meant to be those that polish the mirror. God works through us, in us. He's working on our hearts, he's smoothing out those things, he's refining those things, he's polishing those things and making us a better reflection of him. It's not just a moral improvement, but it, it can include that or will include that. It's removal of a veil that allows communication, that allows transference, that allows a reflection of God's glory. It brings us fallen human beings from death to life, from condemnation to righteousness. We can all be image bearers and reveal his glory. If you aren't being transformed, are you spending time with the Holy Spirit? Are you spending time reflecting and reading God's word? Are you allowing the presence of God to mould you into the person you've been designed to be? We have a new freedom as God's people to be in his presence, no longer needing to hide our faces from him whether that be in a meeting or reflecting God's glory to the world around us, we're free to display his glory and reflect it. We don't have to cover it up. We don't have to hide our light away. We don't have to put it under a basket. We can let it fill the room, the whole place where we live and work, where we have impact. So let your light shine. Allow God's glory to shine through you and reflect it to the world around you.
Matthew 5, 16, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. We're supposed to be those that allow God's light, his presence to shine on us. We're meant to meet with him face to face and know him. We have that access. It's, It's who we are. This freedom comes through Jesus. He is our sufficiency. When we trust in him, when we trust in Jesus and gaze upon his beauty and when we rejoice with him and in him, we will begin to reflect his glory. And as we do this more and more, we will more and more reflect his glory. It's a freedom that means that we don't need to hide from God's presence and we don't need to hide his presence from the world. We don't need to keep him bottled up. Uh, We should thrust him front and centre in our lives and allow him to transform us. As you spend time in him, reflecting on him and contemplating him, seeing him face to face, you will be changed. You can't fail to be changed. There's no other result. You cannot remain in his presence and not be changed. It would be as foolish as trying to stop the tide. It just isn't going to happen. When we spend time with Jesus, he will transform us. When we allow his presence to wash over us and give space for him to come, he will come and he will change us in ever-increasing measure. The more we do this, the more others will notice him in us. When we come to God with unveiled faces so that we might display his glory to a hurt and dying world around us, God will meet with us. This world desperately needs to see the saviour that Jesus is and desperately needs to see his glory. So we need to be those that are ready to reflect his glory to the world around us. So what have we looked at? We've looked at the fact that we should be careful that our expectations match what the Bible says. That we shouldn't judge things by the charisma and wealth and numbers that this world does. That we should expect to be aware and experience God's glory all the more because of the Holy Spirit at work in us. We've looked at the fact that it's Christ who removes the veil and that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That we can all encounter God's presence and his glory and it will impact our lives. It will transform us and we will reflect his glory all the more. So to wrap up, I asked some of these questions earlier. But if you aren't being transformed, are you spending enough time with the Holy Spirit? Are you spending enough time reflecting and reading his word? Are you allowing God's presence to mould you and make you into the person he designed you to be? How many of us hide what God has done in our lives and forget or don't treasure the things that he said over us or done in and through us? When we go about our daily lives, when we head to work or school or college or whatever we do on Mondays, do we hide God? Do we put that veil back on because we don't want to communicate about who he is? Are you going to remove that veil so that those around you can see the glory of God in you? Why not make a decision today about where and who you're going to seek to display God's glory to this week? The other thing is, do you need to make a response to Jesus today? Have you heard this good news of freedom for the first time today and want that relationship with Jesus? You can do that today. Or do you need to recommit to Jesus today? Has he been calling you back this morning? And finally, do you need to commit to seeking more times of encounter with God where you will be changed? I think we can all probably say that that's true. 
Lord, I thank you for this passage, Lord, and the things that you've been speaking to us today about reflecting your glory and being a people that reflect your glory. Lord, I pray that each one of us would be able to do that more clearly. Lord, that you would continue to polish us and make us more like the one that you've called us to be like, that is Christ. Lord God, thank you that we're not called to do this on our own. Lord, that we don't have to polish away and, Lord, work as hard as we can, but that actually you say that you do that by your spirit as we spend more and more time with you. Lord, that you will transform us. Lord, that that's what happens. That's what happened to Moses when he went into your presence and met you face to face. He was changed. He couldn't do anything about it in some ways. <laughs> and Lord, we ask that we would be those that can meet you face to face and that we would actively seek to do that. Lord, thank you that you've given us that freedom. It's amazing that we have that freedom. Uh, we are so grateful for it, Lord. Thank you. Amen. Thanks for listening to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk or come along on any Sunday morning.